A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Metabolic Classroom, a nutrition and lifestyle podcast focused on the truth behind why we get sick and fat. What you're about to hear was taken from a live broadcast streamed on InsulinIQ.com. The Metabolic Classroom is brought to you by InsulinIQ and by Health Code Meal Replacement Shakes. Episode 33, Can a Low-Carb Diet Cause Insulin Resistance? Many people claim that eating low-carb can actually make you insulin-resistant. How could this be? The answer lies in the key difference between two types of insulin resistance, pathological versus physiological. Let's discuss what's really happening. This is a topic that I've wanted to speak on for a while because it's one that I think is so misunderstood. And it's one that I think just with a little bit of clarity resolves the confusion quite readily. So let's let's start the conversation, the classroom, by just reminding uh, the the class of insulin resistance. <clears throat> so insulin resistance, regardless of how well to be properly invoked. So if someone's talking about insulin resistance, <clears throat> they're talking about two problems in one. That is that some of the body's cells aren't responding to insulin very well. Not all of them, but some of them. And then on the other hand, or on the other side of the coin, it's that blood insulin levels are elevated. Those two things always happen together if, if, if we're talking about insulin resistance. Uh, you, you, cannot pull one, you cannot pull one away from the other. They always occur together. Compromised insulin signaling at some spots and elevated insulin. So that's just a reminder of what insulin resistance is. Even in both situations, whether it's pathological insulin resistance or physiological insulin resistance, in both of these known clinical scenarios, it's always altered insulin signaling, compromised at some cells, and elevated insulin. Now, pathological insulin resistance is the insulin resistance that I focus on most as a biomedical scientist. And this is the insulin resistance that is taking over the world and is increasing our risk of Alzheimer's disease, certain cancers, fatty liver, infertility, and hypertension, and more and more and more. So this is the insulin resistance that anyone who's heard me talk about it or, or read the book or heard others talk about, this is usually what they're talking about. It's the insulin resistance that is related to the sick state or the sick body. Now, <clears throat> on the other hand, we have insulin resistance when it is a healthy body. Everything is going right. Everything is healthy and working well. It is, uh, it is physiological. Uh, and, and in this case, the insulin resistance is simply a part of this process. Whatever the process is in this healthy body, the insulin resistance comes in to play a part. It's not coming in to cause a disease or to mediate a disease. It's not evidence of anything having gone wrong. So it's physiological insulin resistance or it's insulin resistance with a purpose in stark contrast to pathological insulin resistance, which is insulin resistance with no good reason to be there. It's only making things worse. So that's the difference between pathological and physiological. Now, again, with physiological, <clears throat> there's nothing wrong. 
It's serving a purpose. And it happens in two known states in the life of a human, some humans. Every human goes through puberty. That is one of the states of physiological insulin resistance. And then some portion of all of us will go through pregnancy. That's the other state of known physiological insulin resistance or insulin resistance with, uh, with a purpose. Now, in both of those states of, ins of physiological insulin resistance, we have altered insulin signaling and elevated insulin. So it, even though it's physiological, it still checks the two boxes that we're using to define insulin resistance. Now, in the case, uh, in both instances, in puberty and pregnancy, you will note a person will, uh, that body, the puberty body or the pregnancy, the pregnant body will need 30 to 50% more insulin to just get the job done, to clear the glucose. That's what I, when I say get the job done, it's that most famous job of insulin, namely clearing glucose. In order for those bodies to clear glucose, it simply needs more insulin to do that. In, but it's for different reasons. And I'll, I'll elaborate a little bit just so that we have a firm understanding as a class what is physiological insulin resistance? In the case of puberty, most of what's causing the insulin resistance is the incredible elevation in growth hormone. Growth hormone, of course, is causing largely this explosive growth in the, in the child who's becoming an adult. And growth hormone is a known insulin antagonist. It makes the body a little more insulin resistant. So that's likely the puberty-induced physiological insulin resistance, namely through growth, growth hormone. With regards to pregnancy, it's likely more a result of the unique sex hormone changes, the increase in estrogens and progesterone. The increase in the two of those hormones, um, which, which is unique with pregnancy, progesterone is the hormone of pregnancy. It's up during pregnancy. It's progestation, or it's a hormone largely responsible in, well, among many, for promoting the development of mom's body and, of course, the baby's body. So it, but those two hormones are known to together cause insulin resistance. So in the case of pregnancy and the physiological insulin resistance that accompanies it, it's the result of those pregnancy-related sex hormones. So two different mechanisms in two different situations that are very different, what they have in common is growth, whether it's the teenager growing or whether it's mommy's body growing, um, growing a placenta, growing a little more fat, growing some other tissues and helping baby grow. So it, both, it serves a purpose in both of them. <clears throat> now, what about low-carb diets? So earlier I'd mentioned that in pregnancy and puberty, the body needs more insulin to clear a certain load of glucose, which definitely reflects an insulin resistance. That is not what happens with a low-carb diet. So one study that I want to refer to, and we have this, a link to this, is entitled uh, Carbohydrate Intake Prior to Oral Glucose Tolerance Testing. And this was a paper just published a few, uh, a few weeks ago. It was published in 2021, so just a few weeks ago. What is so revelatory in this manuscript is them highlighting a practice that once was common and then fell out of favor, as in our hubris, we thought we were getting so clever in detecting glucose-related problems, you know, diabetes-related issues in people. So in this study, which had nothing to do with a low-carb diet, but I highlight it because it's a perfect reflection of what's happening in a low-carb diet. What they noted was that if people didn't eat enough glucose the night before, just, just the single night before even, uh, uh, going in and taking an oral glucose tolerance test, they would fail the oral glucose tolerance test. That, so, so briefly, when someone goes in for an oral glucose tolerance test, they go in and they sit down and they drink a solution of glucose. Usually it's somewhere between 50 to 75, usually 75 grams. It's kind of this syrupy kind of sugary little mix. Most pregnant gals who had been pregnant or are now, they know about it because they have to do it to screen for gestational diabetes. So you go in and you drink this solution and then you have blood tests at various time points, depending on how rigorous they wanna be with the test. What they found was that in these people who were healthy, non-diabetic individuals, if they didn't take about 50 grams of glucose the night before, they would have an oral glucose tolerance test that went much higher and stayed higher for longer similar to what you see in genuine states of insulin resistance, like in type 2 diabetes. Maybe not quite as dramatic, but it was certainly more dramatic than a normal, non-diabetic, healthy response like you'd expect. 
And what the authors of this paper note, which I appreciate, is that with the birth of us using hemoglobin A1C tests, uh, which is which is considered a, a, you know kind of increasingly a gold standard of sorts for determining glucose control. With the birth of that test came the death of the oral glucose tolerance test and specifically the knowledge of how to do it well. As we started doing OGTTs or, or oral glucose tolerance tests less commonly, less frequently, we forgot this, what was once a fundamental rule of the test. And to add a little more detail, it was basically in the three days or so before taking the test, eat around 100 grams of glucose. And then the night before, and don't fast for more than 12 hours, take another, so about eight hours, maybe 10 hours before the test, take another 50 grams of glucose, and then you'll pass the test fine. And that's what they found in this study. What was initially considered a failed test because the person hadn't taken in enough glucose in the days prior and the, the evening prior became a totally normal test by just ensuring that the patient or the subject took sufficient glucose, like 50 grams the night before. This is relevant not only for the, well, for all of us, because we may fall into the temptation of we're going in for a, a fasted blood test the next day, and we think we're going to really do well, and we're going to pass with flying colors by fasting for 12 hours or 16 hours or 24 hours. But in the end, it works against us if we're going in for an oral glucose tolerance test, because we might fail it. Now, why might you fail it? What, what does this have to do? What does this study have to do with the low-carb diet? It's not that the body has become insulin resistant. It's that the beta cells of the pancreas have stopped making as much insulin. Now, what do I mean by that? Insulin release has typically two, two main phases. There's a first phase insulin release and then a second phase insulin release. The first phase of insulin release is the beta cells releasing insulin that it already has on hand. It's already in the factory, packaged up, ready to go out the moment the signal comes. And so you, have, you release all that insulin and that's your first phase or this first little shot of insulin. And that'll act to lower the glucose, of course, but it won't be enough. And the, pancre the, the pancreas knows it's not enough. And so while it's releasing the preformed insulin, it already is busily turning up the factory to start making more insulin to just be immediately shipped out. And that's the second phase. And that second phase of insulin is what will ultimately bring the glucose back to where it wants to be, to where it was before the glucose load came in. So it's the first phase that just provides an initial shot. And then it's the second to help lowering it. Then it's the second phase that will ramp up production of insulin to help really bring the, the, the glucose levels back to where they were. What they noted in this study, if the patient hadn't um, ingested sufficient glucose in the days and evening prior to the test, they had lost a big part of that first phase of insulin release. And, and why not? Why would the pancreas want to be holding on to a bunch of insulin if it wasn't needing it immediately? The pancreas, like most cells of the body, is too efficient. So these beta cells are looking at all this packaged insulin thinking, oh, well, I guess we overshot our production. We don't need all this insulin. So let's just break it down. Let's, let's degrade that insulin back into its component parts. Then we'll just see how much insulin we need to make later. We'll just turn on the factory. So that's what's happening. I strongly submit in a low carb diet. We're actually doing some studies in rodents to confirm this. And early evidence suggests it is in fact the case that with a low carb diet, we simply have lost temporarily that first phase of insulin release. And so we don't have that big shot of insulin into the system. So when someone who's on a low carb diet goes in for an oral glucose tolerance test, they might have a false positive. They might not pass that test um, it'll take longer to clear the glucose, not because the body is resistant to insulin. It's simply that the pancreas, in an effort to be very efficient, had gotten rid of what it perceived as excess insulin. It still has the ability to make it. Make, it can make it perfectly well. So just like in this study of not, not fasting too long, wherein the mistake was not ingesting glucose in the days prior, in the evening prior, those on a low-carb diet who know they have to pass an oral glucose tolerance test, whatever the reason may be, you want, I would say we follow the advice that's outlined in this study, which was make sure you're taking around 100 grams of glucose in the couple days before. In the evening before, take 50 grams. Don't fast too long, and you'll go into that oral glucose tolerance test, and you'll pass it perfectly well. That is not insulin resistance. It is rather the loss 
acutely, it's fixable almost immediately. It's the loss of the first phase of insulin release in what is normally a two-phase or two-step process. So those that are invoking physiological insulin resistance in the context of a low-carb diet are wrong. It is not insulin resistance by any definition. You could perhaps call it a glucose intolerance. It takes longer to clear the glucose, but not because insulin isn't working, but because there just isn't enough insulin. The pancreas hasn't been making much as much of it. And, and now when it suddenly gets the signal to make a lot, it just takes it a little time to get back up to speed, to get the factory running at full capacity again. Thankfully, it's perfectly capable of doing it. There's nothing permanent that has happened. It is just a temporary phenomenon, reflective of what has become you know, an adaptation to a long-term diet, like a low-carb diet. That's the classroom. Hmm. Fascinating. Wow. Uh, Matt, Carly, any, any questions come up in your mind? I'm going to look at what we've had come in from our audience. Anything from you, Matt, or Carly? Well, I'll take a look here. Not really for me. <laughs> I feel like Ben really answered that question well. I've known, I know I have posed that question before to you. Um, yeah. You Some know, people call I, it glucose sparing. It. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I know we get it so often. Another term for this, so I would say rather than physiological insulin resistance, you could call it an acute glucose intolerance. I think glucose sparing um, is, is probably kind of accurate, but might be a little misleading. It really is just a matter of the pancreas isn't making quite enough insulin in the moment, not that it's lost its capacity. It, uh, it just needs to be reminded um, that, that, hey, sometimes I'm going to eat glucose and, and here it comes, so get ready. It, but it really is just a, a, the key takeaway is if you've got to pass an oral glucose tolerance test, remind the pancreas how to produce insulin and how to hold on to it really well by eating some glucose um, in the days before the test. I had a, I had a question, Ben. Um, you talked about the uh, normal state of insulin resistance uh, in puberty and pregnancy. Would an adult who is exercising a lot and producing uh, more growth hormone, uh, hormones potentially through that also show that kind of situation? That's a great question. No. The changes in growth hormone that would happen with exercise is relatively very, very subtle. Um, and certainly compared to the puberty where it's you know, you have increases in growth hormone that is orders of magnitude higher than normal. So it would not be comparable. It wouldn't get into the same range. And I guess the, I, I do have a couple questions. Um, does the rate of production of insulin in that second phase change? Is it, or do we know if it's slower or, or we lose the ability to produce it as quickly with those beta cells as we go low carb? Yeah, yeah. So there, there's no deficit in the second phase of insulin um, release. That, that has been made clear from fasting studies, and I can only assume that the same phenomena is going to apply to low-carb diets as well, and I'm very, very confident it would. But yeah, the second phase is not compromised whatsoever. It works perfectly well. It's just that first phase, which again is totally a function of how much insulin is the, are the beta cells just holding on to in reserve so that they can release it as quickly as possible. And then just lastly, so in, knowing all of this and knowing that we're dealing with a lot of low-carb um, people that are eating that way, what do you think is the relevance of the OGTT test for determining metabolic health and insulin resistance? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. So I am an advocate of OGTT, especially if they are able to measure insulin with the OGTT. So it, it nevertheless is a good indicator of glucose tolerance, which is often an indicator of insulin sensitivity, but I just have finished at length describing how th there is an exception to that. But usually it is a good reflection of insulin sensitivity, but it is not the same thing. Too many people will look at an OGTT and call it insulin sensitivity or insulin resistance. We cannot make that claim. The most we can say is with regards to the glucose tolerance, that is explicitly what it's testing. But again, usually it can be a good surrogate, but not when it's fasting or a low-carb diet. We've sort of uncoupled the two. Is that, uh, Matt, does that answer your question? Indeed, thanks. Great, great.
We've got a couple of questions that have come in from viewers and listeners uh, from Brian. Since insulin resistance can vary tremendously from day to day or even hour to hour, how can chronic insulin resistance be measured accurately? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I wonder. So insulin resistance does not vary dramatically from day to, uh, from moment to moment, hour to hour. That doesn't happen. Insulin levels can vary um, and how dramatic they are is, is fairly specific to the individual, um, you know, and, and how the, how we would define dramatic, but it certainly can change hour to hour. Again, that is insulin levels can change fairly robustly within some range. And that's all a subjective term. Um, uh, but like I would say an insulin that's ranging from two to 10, that's a pretty dramatic turn. That's a five fold increase. And yet the average clinician would look at a 10 insulin and say, Oh, that's great. Uh, in fact, th that's really low. Is everything okay? And I would say, Oh, you know, that's, is that a little high? Uh, so, so that's all relative. Um, but insulin resistance, insulin sensitivity does not wildly change from hour to hour within a day. It can certainly change modestly, but not dramatically. Okay. Okay. Uh, from Miguel, could hyperthyroidism cause physiological insulin resistance? Both states Ben mentioned are increased hormonal states. Yeah. Yeah, I, I did. So with pregnancy and puberty, so hyperthyroidism um, tends to enhance insulin sensitivity. It um, just because the body's metabolic rate is so much higher as thyroid kind of controls the idle of the engine. It's accelerating the engine. The, every cell is just doing what it does at a higher rate. And that tends to, by enhancing energy use, that tends to improve insulin sensitivity. Hypothyroidism would, would tend to cause more insulin resistance, tend to, um, but yeah, yeah, hyperthyroid would change insulin sensitivity status, but it wouldn't be in the direction of insulin resistance. Okay. Um, those. Yeah, so that, that's, yeah. I mean, maybe an important point of, clarif of mm -hmm. clarification. Um, when there is, so I actually really like, he's pointing out that, Miguel's pointing out that the other states I mentioned were states of elevated hormone, that it's unique to those hormones, um, that if someone has um, elevations in other hormones, that isn't, it's not that an elevation in every hormone is going to drive insulin resistance. It's just, that was something quite unique to those states of elevated hormones. Elevations in other hormones like thyroid, rather than causing insulin resistance, may in fact be promoting insulin sensitivity. Okay. What about, what about menopause? Do you see kind of a similar thing happen in menopause? Yeah. Yeah. You certainly do see insulin resistance. In, in fact, Carly, that, that's a good point. Maybe we need to call the insulin resistance that happens with aging a form of physiological, but in the end, it is almost always pathological. Um, but yeah, whether it's men or women, um, menopause certainly accelerates that, in, in partly, I'm sure, because of estrogen's protective effects on how fat cells behave. Now, not estrogens and progesterone, of course. Um, estrogens alone have a fairly protective effect in that regard. Um, but yeah, what tends to happen with aging, uh, if there's any consensus, I believe it should focus on the fat cell, where people have, we've talked in previous classrooms about the number of fat cells we have and how typically that number is set at the end of pregnancy as the pubescent individual enters adulthood. That number stays pretty static until older age, 70s, 80s. Now we start to lose our number of fat cells to the uninitiated or uninformed, they would say, well, that's a great thing. Fewer fat cells is wonderful news. But that, that overlooks the reality that if the body still has sufficient energy and sufficient insulin to be telling it to store fat, then all that happens is the fat that was once stored in five fat cells that were this big, all that fat gets pulled into the two remaining fat cells that are now this big. In hypertrophy of a fat cell, as we all know, is the wrong way for a fat cell to grow. When a fat cell is individually very fat or overfull, that is an insulin-resistant fat cell. And so that's likely at least a big part of why the individual um, becomes more insulin-resistant with age, why it's so common, simply because we start losing fat cells and the remaining fat cells become hypertrophic, and then those become insulin-resistant fat cells, spreading the insulin resistance throughout the body. Hmm. Uh, interesting question from Carol. I have type 1 diabetes and I follow a low-carb diet. 
Uh, I have a friend who also has type 1 diabetes and follows a high-carb diet. We take about the same daily dose of insulin. She says, I'm insulin resistant because I can't eat carbs without a lot of insulin. Is that true? Um, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yes, probably. Um, this She may be, the questioner may be, in fact, inherently more insulin resistant than her friend. Um, I, and that could be reflective of any number of things, including genetic or including lifestyle or, or you know, and genetic by that, I mean, a predisposition. If there's a family history of type two, um, then that person might have a double whammy, um, where if she started indulging in carbs more like her friend would, she would need more glucose. Um, and that might indeed reflect an underlying insulin resistance. Uh, my response is, well, then you're doing well, um, insofar as, insofar as whatever your body, whatever your inclination for one or the other insulin resistance or insulin sensitivity may be. But with the friend, if she's eating a high carb diet, I would be interested in knowing what she's eating. If, for example, this friend is following a, 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 a plant-based kind of whole food high carb diet, those tend to be lower in fat, which tends to mean low energy. And it does reflect um, the two strategies of improving insulin sensitivity and body weight control, which is low insulin or and low energy. The nice thing um, is with with low energy that that also if you're deliberately eating less energy, low calorie, that typically will mean low insulin because you're just eating less and insulin comes down. Of course, the the downside is that you might also be hungry much more often. And so that's why I don't think starting with low energy is a proper approach for weight loss because then you're just hungry a lot. But nevertheless, these two ideas that some have pitted against each other, insulin versus energy, um, I don't think they are, in fact, um, opposite ideas or in any way, not even opposite, but in any way antagonistic. The reality is they go together um, usually. They usually are going to move in the same direction. These are just two different approaches. But nevertheless, back to the specific question, she may in fact have an inherently lower glucose tolerance. And it's, I'm thrilled she knows that, and I'm thrilled that she's made the changes she needs to uh, to, to keep her glucose levels um, at a good range and yeah. to stay insulin sensitive. Hope that helps, Carol. Uh, from Leah, could a lack of a phase one insulin response drive insulin resistance long-term? No, nope. Um, so the loss of a phase one insulin response has nothing to do with the efficacy with which insulin can work. Can, can work. Those are two totally different processes and it will not, one will not cause the other. Okay. Great. Well, uh, those, are, those are the main questions that came in specific to our topic uh, today. You know, Thank Jack, you. I saw yeah. one, if, if you don't mind, no, I'll, I'll ask myself a question. Or rather, I'll, pose, I'll, I'll present it and then I'll answer it. Someone on social media had asked me, how does someone, if they become insulin resistant and overweight, why do they stop gaining weight? What is it that's preventing, what's causing the, the cap there? What's so interesting is that you, you have to flip this paradigm around where you have to come back to the level of the fat cell. And it's because the fat cell, one, one provocative paradigm is because the fat cell can't store more fat, the body starts to become insulin resistant. So it's because the person's weight gain stops that they become insulin resistant. Um, and and le so let me elaborate. So there are, and this is a topic we've covered before, and so I'll be brief. There are two ways for fat tissue to grow, not fat cell, but fat tissue. You know, the fat that we're pinching and jiggling. It can grow through hyperplasia, which is when every individual fat cell will get a little big and then it recruits a new fat cell to store more of the fat, the energy that it's storing and the insulin that's telling the fat cells to store more. So hyperplasia is a way for fat to continue to store more and more fat. And those fat cells stay healthy and happy and insulin sensitive, continuing to store more fat. In contrast, and this is where the vast majority of people fall, most uh, fat cells will usually grow not through a number change, not through hyperplasia or the production of new fat cells, but rather through a size change. So hypertrophic or hypertrophy of the fat cell. 
In this case, as the fat cell is growing, it ends up reaching a point of maximum dimension. It cannot grow anymore. And in order to ensure that it doesn't grow anymore, it starts to become insulin resistant. Insulin's trying to tell the cell to continue to store more and more energy, but it starts to tell the body and insulin specifically, I cannot store anymore, I'm full, and now I'm going to become insulin resistant so that I don't explode. And this is, so this explains why the person has stopped gaining weight because the fat, they literally can't store more fat in their fat cells. And now as the fat cells become insulin resistant, I believe that's the first cell. That's where, that's the point, that's the beginning of the initiation of it all. And then that starts to spread the insulin resistance throughout the body, like the liver, the muscles, the brain, et cetera. And then glucose levels change and then they get type two diabetes. So a person's inability to continue to store fat is reflected in insulin resistance, but interestingly, it's the inability to store more fat that's directly causing the insulin resistance. In those people who inherently genetically have the ability to store fat through hyperplasia, those are the people that become a bit of a paradox because they have an almost limitless potential to store fat. These are the people who end up on reality TV shows, they're five or 600 pounds, and yet they are generally pretty healthy. They may have normal-ish blood pressure, pretty close to normal glucose levels, uh, and, and, and you know, liver health and everything else because they're continuing to store their fat in their fat cells because genetically they have the ability to just keep making fat cells. So they keep gaining weight, they stay insulin sensitive, and paradoxically, metabolically speaking, stay much healthier than you'd think. Again, that's a minority of individuals. That's about 15 to 20% of people who become obese, they can go that route. Mm. The vast majority of individuals, the other 80 to 85% of people, and even more that are headed that direction that haven't reached the obese category yet, they're getting fat through hypertrophy. And so two things will happen. One, they won't get as fat as other people might. And two, they will become insulin resistant with the fat amount that, that um, it can, largely driven by the fat that they are storing, even if it's less than the person who's storing fat through hyperplasia. Hmm. Yeah, I remember we did, uh, I think we did a metabolic classroom uh, on that very topic about three, four or five months ago, it seems like. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And it was awesome. So go, everyone go back and listen to that <laughs> yeah, class. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, the metabolic classroom is actually a podcast now. So we take uh, the the stream, live stream material that we do and put it on uh, our podcast. So wherever you get your podcasts, look up the metabolic classroom there. Uh, another question came in from Crystal just now, referring back to, to where you talked about those different spikes, insulin uh, glucose spikes, Ben. So here's her question. Are you saying that spikes on the CGM may not be as important as the return to your baseline fasted numbers when doing a low carb diet? Actually, yes. I, I think that, I don't know that I was emphasizing that, but I, I do think that's very relevant. Um, that if you can, if someone eats a glucose load and they're back to like normal-ish glucose in like two hours, that's a wonderful sign. And so it's really, rather than the, the height of it, the, the peak, although that, we would say that matters, but, um, especially if you've lost that first phase of insulin release because you're on a low carb diet, that would certainly lend itself to a higher peak. But because you're insulin sensitive, once the pancreas is starting to pump out that insulin, you should come down pretty quickly. And, and so I do think a return to normal is more relevant than what the spike may be. Not to say that the spike is irrelevant, but in a low carb diet, that spike may be a misleading um, phenomenon. Carly, you often bring up that our clients talk about those spikes, and uh, do, do we do our clients do do our coaches talk to them uh, also about the return to this baseline as much as they worry about those spikes? Yeah, I think most of our clients aren't wearing a CGM, and so we have to use just a glucose finger prick um, to get some information. So we that we basically tell people check yourself. You know, if you only want to do two finger pricks, prick your finger, eat your food, and check check two hours later if you want to see how food is Perfect. affecting you. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I would say that that's most important. What I've understood 
maybe you can answer this, Ben. Tell me if this is correct. Is that you don't want to see more than about a 40 point spike? Um, like you're saying, maybe that's not as important. Um, but from, from yeah. where you are to where you're going, is that about right? I mean, would you want to see? Yeah. Yeah. So I, no, no, I think in general, I think that a 40 point change is probably a good point. I would, I would just say that, you know, there would be instances where the person was fasted and then the carbs that they ate was like pure sugar, you know, like gummy candies. Like I, I have seen my absolute highest spike ever was the high hundreds. And it was because I ate little like jelly bean like candies and it was just phenomenal. And then it went down really quick, which actually is what caused me to notice and look back at my CGM in the first place because I just felt so terrible, but I went back to normal really quickly and so, yeah, I think in general, a 40-point change is probably a good rule of thumb. But knowing that if you're fasted or really strict low-carb and what you ate was a super refined sugar, um, then it's probably going to really spike. And then in that case, did you get back within the two hours? Or, or at least did you get back to under 100 or so within two hours? That's kind of what's considered a good cutoff. Um, and, of course, the more you mix your macros, for better or for worse, if you're eating that carb with fat, you won't get as high a spike. It absolutely will temper that spike. It may prolong the glucose clearance though, because you have more energy that you've put with that glucose that has to get cleared as well. Um, so we can, we can manipulate this one way or the other. We can try to push the spike down by mixing macros with that glucose and that'll just prolong the glucose return to normal. Or if we, you know, want to return to normal really quickly and it's, Actually, let me not say it that way, lest someone abuse what I'm saying. If it's a more purely refined starch, it will go up and down faster. So, and I'm not going to say one's better than the other. It would depend on the context, I think. Yeah. yeah. Great. Uh, and along those... Go ahead, Matt. Along those lines, I've seen situations where uh, when I do have some carbs that my blood glucose actually drops... Um, 15, 20 points, well, maybe not 20, but 15 points below what it would be during fasting. Can you talk about why that might occur? So just, so when you're just in the course of normally eating, you've been low carb, you eat some glucose and your glucose will come up and then be down lower than if you were having a prolonged fast, it won't go low. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Um, it, it, I, this is likely um, somewhat individual, but in, in the course of a fast, we do start to produce insulin antagonist hormones. The two main stress hormones like epinephrine and cortisol start to go up. And so it could be that when you're in a fast and you eat that glucose, you already have these insulin antagonistic hormones there to maybe blunt what is the big insulin release, which may drive the glucose to have been up down a little low, lower than normal. When, when you're putting that in the context of a low carb diet, you don't have this steady increasing in cortisol and epinephrine. And so it might be that when you're eating the glucose load in a low carb diet, you are just sort of subject to all of the power of insulin, which is in, in response to that elevated glucose pushes the glucose down really quickly and it overshoots. And you have that relative hypoglyce relative hypoglycemia. Again, in that case, it could be that the natural um, response to fasting with this subtle increase in those stress hormones, cortisol and epinephrine, it happens and I'm, that's not bad, but that might temper what insulin is doing rather than allowing insulin to be so effective to push you into a rebound relative hypoglycemia. It just slowly brings it back to normal. Question from uh, Matthias. I ate Chinese food and my blood glucose spiked by about a hundred points. It came down about three hours later but I felt like falling asleep at my desk. Is that kind of a spike indicative of insulin resistance? Um, it, it might. Uh, so so um, we, we, we know that people with rebound hypoglycemia that I was just talking about with Matt, that can be an indicator of, in, of, of prediabetes and progression towards type 2 where the beta cells aren't quite behaving normally. Um, but it, it can also simply be a result of what you just ate, how much starch you just ate. And like something like Chinese food, where you have a lot of noodles and rice, which is essentially just pure starch, waiting to just be rapidly converted into glucose. It could just be that you ate so much 
orange chicken and, 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 you know, even thinking about it makes me hungry. I mean, it is so yummy. It's so easy to indulge in those pot stickers and the orange chicken and the Kung Pao chicken and the Mongolian beef. Okay, all the, okay. the, the Mongolian beef is good. That's the best part of it. But that rice and those noodles, most especially, and what they've sweetened the meat with, which is so commonly done here in the U.S., certainly. I, I, it could be a sign of insulin resistance. It might be that you're healthy and you just ate a, a, a bucket load of, of easily digested starches and sugars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, now that we're all beef. hungry, ready for lunch, thanks a lot. <laughs> but can you guys, so when we, when we get Chinese food, there's a little place, if anyone's in Provo, get it from the Green Panda down in Provo. Um, I, we know those guys and it's so good. And my kids want orange chicken and we get it. And oh my goodness, I would eat, I would eat my body weight in orange chicken. Uh, and it's only just this Herculean, Herculean act of, of willpower that I don't eat any or, or even stronger willpower that I only eat two pieces or something. It is so good. It's candy. <laughs> Disguised right. as protein. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. Right. Hey, we've got, uh, we've got another five minutes or so. There's some other questions not really as closely related to what we talked about, but uh, we okay to take a couple of them? Yep. Yeah, let me, let me grab a couple more here. Um, from our website, why do we get fat droplets forming in our muscle cells? Can these cause, can they cause insulin resistance or is it the other way around? That is a great question. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm thrilled to answer that. So there were years ago, maybe 20 years ago now, there was a study released where the title of it was called The Athlete's Paradox. And they talked about this phenomenon of, of lipid deposition, as little lipid droplets in muscle. And what's so important is the composition of those fats. Those fats are triglycerides. And triglycerides, which is the, the natural storage form of fat in the body, those are totally inert, metabolically speaking. They do not harm. They do not antagonize insulin. They don't harm the tissue they're in. That's how fat is supposed to be stored, and it's a nice way of storing it. So what this athlete's paradox found was were these two ends of the spectrum with regards to metabolic health. They noted in overweight individuals, pre-diabetic or otherwise, they're overweight or obese, they have a lot of these fat droplets in their muscle. And then on the very, very other end are these elite athletes, like marathon runners, who are exquisitely insulin sensitive and yet also have these fat muscles, these lipid deposits in their muscles. And so clearly, these lipid droplets are not causing insulin resistance because you have it at both ends, the athletic, the very lean athletes, and the not lean, not athletes. So it's not the lipid droplet. It could just reflect Either on both ends of the at both ends of the spectrum, it reflects two different things. On the athlete's end of the spectrum, it reflects an ability and even uh, a desire to use fat as a fuel. And isn't it smart that the muscle, rather than always having to wait for fat to come from the fat cells, it has its own storage of fat that it can burn, and it does burn readily. So it's it's turning over that fat and using it very readily. In the case of the overweight person or obese, this is a person who is filled their fat stores and their fat cells. And now because of so much energy and so much insulin, the body can't help but keep storing it. And so now it starts to store the fat in what's called ectopic sites or sites that were not originally intended to store fat, like the muscle. Now, again, though, that isn't, it's not that the muscle, the fat in the muscle is causing insulin resistance. It's that the fat in the muscle in the overweight obese situation reflects an insulin resistant over fat filled body. Hmm. Um, for, from Krista, I've reversed my type 2 diabetes with ketogenic eating. A1C is at 5.2 without any meds. But my morning blood nice. glucose, morning blood glucose, uh, even after two years, still in the 100 to 105, which seems not that high to me. Um, does this mean I have reversed my diabetes, but I now have physiological insulin resistance? Krista, good for you. What an accomplishment yeah. to reverse your diabetes. Yeah. I hope you feel good about it. You ought to. Uh, you're among the few who have reversed what is often considered an irreversible problem. 
and with conventional medicine, it is irreversible. You bucked convention. Good for you. Uh, no, it does not reflect a physiological insulin resistance. I, we've talked about this quite a bit in previous classrooms. Um, we don't know exactly why some people on a low-carb diet have this paradoxic um, high glucose, whether it stays high or whether it goes high later. We're, we're trying to understand that. Um, it, it could, I think it, uh, first of all, that's a pretty good number. It could be a reflection of when you're taking it, that if you measured it later in the morning or in the afternoon or evening, it might be totally normal. Um, so I would say try mixing up when you're measuring. And I know Carly um, and, and Matt would speak to this with more experience as a coach. Uh, but I would say mix up your time of when you're measuring it. You might be pleasantly surprised that at any other time of the day, it's normal. Uh, morning is maybe one of the worst times to measure um, because of the little bit of insulin resistance that just happens in the mornings um, with the dawn phenomenon. Um, but it, it might also be uh, a function of a body that has a disposition towards type 2 diabetes and is thus more sensitive to certain signals. Um, I, I, I speculate one theory that I have is that people who do see an increase in glucose on a low-carb diet, it might be that they are hyper-responsive to protein. We do know that in type 2 diabetics, there is a much higher glucagon response to protein than in non-diabetics. And so I wonder whether there's just a carryover where you're, the protein, you're eating protein, which I defend and think it's a wonderful macronutrient. You just have a more of a, you have a heightened glucagon response to that protein and glucagon wants to increase glucose release from the liver. And then you're seeing that. I don't think that's a reason to cut back on protein. I'm not saying that. So I don't want to be misunderstood, but I, I speculate, I theorize that that's, that might be what's happening in some people. Mm-hmm. And do you sense that there's a shift in what is thought of as a high glucose number with 100 seemingly to be a pretty even and convenient number uh, in the absence of other <laughs> confounding factors in terms of metabolic health? Absolutely. I think that with the, with the explosion of frequent use of CGMs, one that will give us a, a better idea of what glucose levels actually are, um, but also... Um, with a growing awareness of insulin and other variables, that, that glucose alone is not particularly pathogenic. That glucose has to get to fantastically high levels to actually start causing, I mean, high, high hundreds, that's not, not fantastically high, but quite high um, for the average person before it really starts causing a problem on its own. That in, in at around 100 or so, I think that we've created an artificially rigid cutoff and frankly, and admittedly, cynically, I think it's because glucose is a druggable target. Because we can give the person drug interventions that will lower the glucose, it makes financial sense to point the finger at glucose. This is fairly anag an analogous to LDL cholesterol. Our obsession with LDL cholesterol, which is based on so such weak evidence um, with regards to it being in so inherently pathogenic, I think is really born from the fact that we have a series of drugs that really effectively lower LDL. And unfortunately, sometimes, and I know it's cynical, you just have to follow the money. Um, glucose is a druggable target. And so if we have individuals who say that glucose needs to adhere to this very rigid cutoff, well, then the moment they're going beyond, then we can justify using expensive drugs to push it back to where it was, even if it actually makes the person sicker and fatter than they were before. Hmm. Yeah, that's a topic that we, we talk about a lot around here at Insulin IQ because because of, of the, you know, all the people that we coach, and they always have those questions regarding those numbers, right, Carly? Yep. Yeah, very they common do. to see. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a neat way to explain it. We haven't really talked about it in, in that context. And I, I know you think it sounds cynical, but it's interesting to think about it that way, Ben. Yeah, well, I, yeah, it is cynical. That doesn't mean it's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well said. <laughs> well, thank you, Ben, for the Metabolic Classroom yeah. episode today. It's always so fun to come in and kind of get down in the weeds and we want to make sure that all of our fans and followers and friends around the world who tune into these streams know that um, we, we know that we have uh, listeners and fans all over the map. We have lots of people that follow you as a scientist, other scientists that tune in for the Metabolic Classroom to really get down in the weeds 
And we also have hundreds of people that tune in who are just learning about this space and just striving to reverse insulin resistance and their type 2 diabetes and who are not scientists. And it's always great to to be able to kind of touch both sides. And you do such a great job of that, Ben. We appreciate it every week. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. It's always a fun opportunity. I'm always genuinely glad to help have this help to keep the conversation going because where, where my expertise fails is when it actually comes into practice. And, and that's where guys like Matt and Carly and Rich and others really help fill in the gaps, which I have, which are considerable. So I'm thrilled that we have this kind of collaborative team. Yeah, I think it's a great, a great mix as well. So if you have uh, friends or, or family members that need to learn more about reversing type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance, send them to our website, insuliniq.com. They can learn about our coaching programs there. If nothing more, then sign up for our free preview course. It's, uh, it's really a great overview. It takes uh, maybe an hour to go through the preview course and to learn all the details uh, related to Dr. Bickman's research and to his book. Uh, so, so join us at insuliniq.com and, and learn more about it. Also, be sure to follow Ben on Instagram. It's, uh, what's the handle again, Ben? Dr. Uh, really simple. No, just, just Ben Bickman, PhD. Ben Bickman, PhD on Instagram. Yeah. And, and you, uh, you shot a couple of really great videos this last week um, that, that I watched this morning. So be sure to, to follow him on Instagram. Great content there as well. Thank you for listening to the Metabolic Classroom. This podcast is brought to you by Insulin IQ, nutrition and lifestyle coaching for insulin control and better health. Learn more at insuliniq.com. And by Health Code, the world's healthiest and most delicious meal replacement shake. Learn more at Get Health. That's G E T H L T H dot com. Find us on Facebook and YouTube at Insulin IQ. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.